Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Si tienes ciertas afecciones crónicas como enfermedad cardíaca, asma, diabetes, y tienes 19 años o más, 52, 36, 42, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar20. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk Nerdy. Today is Monday, December 7th, 2020, and I'm the host of the show, Cara Santa Maria. This is uh, the second to last show of the year before we take the holiday hiatus. Every I love, I always say we, just me over here. <laughs> But before I take off those two weeks around the holidays, that's December 21st and December 28th. We won't have a new episode. Um, but hopefully there's still a lot of good stuff. And if you're behind on episodes, they'll they'll be able to carry you through. And we'll post some some oldies but goodies, some best ofs that you can make sure to to listen to if you haven't come across them yet. This week's show, though, oh my gosh, I'm so excited. I don't know how to tell you how excited I am. This is one of those rare experiences where I had the opportunity to interview an author that I just profoundly respect, whose work I absolutely love. I've read um, both of her kind of newer books that have been really influential on my work. So, so let me tell you a little bit more about her. Her name's Angela Saini, and she's an independent British science journalist and author. She does a lot of uh, radio and TV presenting, and she's also written um, for all sorts of different outlets, Sunday Times, Nature, New Scientist, Nat Geo, and Wired. She's won a ton of awards. She did a two-part documentary series for BBC Four all about the history and science of eugenics, which aired last autumn. Um, and she wrote two stunning books, which have won a ton of awards. The first one 
inferior, how science got women wrong, and the second one, superior, the return of race science. This is a really important chat. It's one that means an awful lot to me. Um, and I was just thrilled to have the opportunity to sit down with her. So without any further ado, here she is, Angela Saini. Well, Angela, thank you so much for joining me today. You're welcome. It's a pleasure to be here. <laughs> I'm super excited to finally be sitting down with you one-to-one, one -one, obviously virtually, not in person. Um to talk about your books, which um, have just been really influential for me and I think are so, so, so important for literally everybody on this planet. Oh, thank you. <laughs> of course. <laughs> and so, I, you know, I know Superior and I know Inferior. I've read them both cover to cover, um, but I'm not sure that I know whether or not, are these your only books or had you written before these two came out? No, I did write one um, a long time before both of those came out. It was called Geek Nation. It was a kind of travelogue through Indian science, um, looking at the oh. ways in which science technology was changing, um, the way India worked and the kind of rise of this scientific superpower. I don't know how in date it is these days, but the fact that India has taken such a kind of leading role in in vaccine development and production particularly, um, I think just shows that um, many Asian countries have come into their own now scientifically. Right. Oh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's fascinating. And also it's kind of like here in the US and, and where you are in the UK, I can imagine that there is sort of this very... Um, centric kind of western centric view of the world especially the sort of science and technology world there is but i think it's shifted um i mean i wrote geek nation something like a decade ago more than a decade ago and at that time there's no doubt india and china were ascendant um in the scientific universe but china i think has without a doubt leapt ahead so much and you can see it when you read any scientific journal these days, there's just so much mm -hmm. prolific output. And not just that, you get uh, scientists from China working all over the world now. So it's it's an exciting time, I think, to look at science outside the West um, because, right. yeah, everything's changing. Absolutely. And of course, everything is becoming so much more global. Um, it's not only can we no longer operate sort of in this isolationist vacuum, but I, I think from a moral perspective and really a practical perspective, perspective, no longer should we operate in a very isolationist way. <laughs> yeah. Well, I just don't think it's possible now. The output right. from countries like China is just so immense that you'd have to be you know, sitting in a silo to miss what's going on there and, and you would suffer scientifically if you didn't notice what was going on. Right, right. So, you know, um, speaking to the the two books that I think have just been so instrumental, and I know that you've been interviewed by like a million people at this point about <laughs> them, um, Superior, The Return of Race Science, and Inferior, How Science Got Women Wrong, and the new research that's rewriting the story. Um, you know, they have obviously very uh, compelling and, and very kind of shocking titles. And of course, the titles are meant to be ironic in the sense that, you know, <laughs> this is what the science has been trying to tell us, it, you know, when it's biased. And obviously, women are not inferior. Obviously, whites are not superior. But there have been 
long scientific arguments um, in, in that direction. Have you had to, I guess, battle or like defend yourself when when people, <laughs> you know, against the titles of your books? Um, you mean people misinterpreting the titles or not yeah, seeing them or, as ironic? Um, right. Funny enough, not, not in the UK, but I have noticed a couple of people, uh, for example, a, a reader in the US got in touch to say that she was nervous about reading Superior on a train in case somebody misinterpreted what it was right. that she was reading, that maybe she was reading this white supremacy manual or something. But um, no, not so much, actually. It's never even come up as a question, to be honest, oh, but I, I can see the possibility for, for that, certainly. Well, it's. I remember when talking about like booking you. I can't remember if it was for for the interview on the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe or for maybe we were talking about a conference back in the day. And um, I do remember there being some some concern from some people in the sort of uh, the decision making panel saying, "Are people going to misinterpret that the return of race <laughs> science? This sounds. Should we say race pseudoscience instead? Like I'm afraid they'll misunderstand. I was like, I think they'll get it because of who we are. But okay." Yeah, I guess there's scope for that. But I think the reason that I don't call race science pseudoscience, why why I don't you know kind of put it in quotation marks or anything, is because historically, um, thinking about races in this way, or even even having the concept that that, that human beings could be divided into races, um, was was part of mainstream science for a very long time. Right. It was considered that way. And we have to confront that because if we can sign it to a kind of pseudoscientific past as something that doesn't affect us anymore, then we really absolve ourselves of the current need to address the ways in which these ideas still live on in modern day research. Oh, absolutely. You know, this is a big topic, but it's a topic that's been sort of in the forefront of my mind for quite some time now for, for several reasons. Um, just last week, I, I, I'm taking a course right now. It's one of my last courses for, for my PhD um, called Integrative Assessment. So it's a class where we take you know, clinical psychological interview, plus all these different psychological assessments, look at the outcomes of them, and then write a big integrative report. And we were writing about, um, you know, ethnic diversity, race, um, country of origin, and uh, just multiculturalism in assessment and kind of pontificating on that. And I, I wrote a, a small little piece um, in the class about the fact that we often don't, like you said, don't want to confront that something as simple as, let's say, the cognitive testing movement, the intelligence testing movement in psychology, that it's not just a passive quirk that it, um, <laughs> it can be divisive or that it misrepresents individuals of different backgrounds, but it was actively designed to prove the inferiority of Black people, hmm. like that it was designed by eugenicists for that purpose. And I think if we're not so explicit about that, and that is a truth that yeah. the story, you're right, the story is getting lost, like just calling mm -hmm. it a pseudoscience and putting it on a dusty shelf doesn't give it its mm. due. Yeah, absolutely. I completely agree with you. And in fact, intelligence research as a community is still plagued by these issues now. I mean, there are, st there are still deep problems there. There are, there are prominent researchers within the intelligence community who are banned from speaking in certain um circles and in certain institutions because they have such 
unsubstantiated views on racial difference. Um, you know, the, the, these are not scientific views that they hold. These are still old, old-fashioned pseudoscientific views. And as you say, a lot of the reason for that is because intelligence testing itself, so the IQ test, was born out of the eugenics movement. And part of the goal of the IQ test at the beginning was to sift human beings into different categories to decide who was eugenically fit and who was eugenically unfit. A lot of the that early work was around class, though, I have to say. It wasn't mm -hmm. so much driven by race, in the UK at least, as it m moved and morphed over time. It, it kind of drew in other categories of inferiority and superiority. But at the beginning, it was, it was really about deciding whether um, poorer people were congenitally unfit, that they were just by nature always going to be poor over generations because they were just um, born stupid. Right, right. And I know that in the book, you you speak quite a bit to even, like you mentioned, the sort of modern implications of that and that there are really whole journal uh journals um i said journals meant articles and journals <laughs> together <laughs> yeah right <laughs> there are whole journals that are really dedicated to perpetuating this rhetoric um that you know if you're in sort of the know you know that these are junk journals but and and you know they're privately funded um to kind of perpetuate this rhetoric but but they ostensibly look like legitimate peer-reviewed journals even today yeah and it can be hard to tell especially when you're online i mean the world of uh publishing has changed so much in recent years and one of those big changes has been the move online and this means everyday people lay people can have access to journal articles where before you would have had to go to a library uh, even a university library so not even just an everyday library to get access to them and it's very difficult in that kind of publishing ecosystem to know which ones, which journals are legit and which ones are just fake or um, pushing a certain ideological agenda. But that isn't the whole problem. It isn't just that there are some dodgy journals and some good journals. The bigger mm -hmm. problem is that there are even some good journals, uh, you know, reputable journals published by some of the big groups like Elsevier and Sage and Taylor and Francis are the biggest publishing companies in the world that also have these problems that have a kind of crossover in terms of editorial board members and contributors with the dodgy journal ecosystem. Um, mm. And that is a kind of deeper problem of standards in publishing, which um, I, I personally think desperately needs to be addressed. Right, right. And I think, you know, kind of going back to the sort of content um, to the actual arguments that are made in the book and that I, I've been seeing coming out in the forefront a little bit more likely because of the overtness of the race relation issue here in the U.S., you know, obviously with the former, uh, not quite yet, former leadership and um, the sort of boldening that he and his cabinet has allowed for, you know, obviously these issues go back very far and they are not new. Um, and racism has been present in the U.S. this entire time. But I think what is is different today is that it, it's almost like there there was a permission given from a high office to 
go back to a time when you could be a little more overt, when you could, you know, wear it on your sleeve a little bit more. Um, And in doing so, I think one of the things that I'm finding in my work, and so I'm super interested in your take on this, is that when I speak publicly from an anti-racist stance, and I also speak publicly about science and scientific skepticism, uh, I get these emails (laughs) or these, you know, messages that... So much like you could just change a few words and it would feel mm. a lot like an email from a Galton or a Spearman saying, yes, mm. but don't you see how the like, let me give you an example, a quick example. Yeah. yeah. Um, last week, one of my co-hosts on the Skeptics Guide did a story about uh, artificial intelligence. And just as a little passing thing, he said something about bias in facial recognition. And he was like, you know, I'm sure that the programmers didn't, you know, I'm sure that this wasn't intentional. And then he just like moved on. And I was like, I have to stop you right there. Like, you can't just gloss over something like that. And I'm not stopping you to say it was intentional, but I'm stopping you to say that this is sort of the attitude that MLK talked about in his letter from a Birmingham jail, like this idea mm-hmm. of just shrugging it off and maintaining a moderate position and saying, oh, they they didn't mean what they what happened. Mm-hmm. Like, we've got to look at the systemic racism that feeds into the bias that's being built into the systems and see how it's being used. So we can't we really can't just like gloss over that. Yep. I got so many emails from people saying, no, isn't it the case that the reason that facial recognition doesn't work as well on Black people is because of the pixels? And because, and they had all these technological <laughs> for it. I was like, wow, it sounds like you're going back to this like phrenological argument. Mm. Well, you it's know? almost, uh, I find it almost as though people don't want to accept that racism might be an explanation for the, for the things that they see right. when, th- when something racist happens. You know, they would rather have any other explanation for what they see because that way they can convince themselves that racism isn't a problem in society that it, you know if if these things are happening if these things are happening out in the world it's for some there there are other explanations for what's happening and it's not because we need to fix anything and that kind of mm. laissez faire argument which is which is essentially at the root of a lot of scientific modern day scientific racism um is trying to justify inequality out in the world as though it's somehow natural. This is just how things pan out, you know. And I see this within people, uh, you know, among scientific sexists as well, that the world looks the way it does, not because people are sexist and not because people are racist. You know, there is a gender pay gap, not because we have any problems out in the world, but just, you know, this is how things pan out. Women just don't make different, they make different choices from men. Um, We have some underlying differences, perhaps not in capacity. It's very difficult to make that that claim these days, but maybe in preference, and maybe there is some biological basis to that preference difference that women would rather stay at home with their children and men would rather go out to work or women would rather do this and men would rather do that. And, you know, you see them going around in circles, doing these weird intellectual somersaults to try and justify the status quo um, mm. And I think all it comes down to is an unwillingness to change, ultimately, right. that we would rather society stayed the way it was. And and I mean, it's easy, I guess, for me to sit here and point to the fact that it's like, you know, underneath it all, it's a function of if if I'm sort of a, a, a cis white Christian man um, 
and I've had a position of power and privilege, I want to maintain that. I think it's not as individualistic as that. I think it's more systemic than that. You know, it's about institutions. It's not so much about individual people. Um, that, you know, what's the motivation for keeping things as they are? Well, I like the power dynamic yeah. as it is it's working in my favor. Um, but I think beyond people who are in a position of power, and you see this with the populist movement here in the US right now, and, and the real unrest, it's about the fact that when there's heavy income inequality, and when there's, um, uh, you know, these, these big economic problems, that populism becomes uh, attractive as a means to to have a sense of of strength and have a sense of power. And unfortunately, what I'm seeing over and over again is a misunderstanding of what privilege is. That when you privilege has almost become a weaponized word. That when mm, yeah. when, when really you try to say it's a privilege for you to not have had to. Have thought about these things because mm. these things simply don't affect you that is very different than saying your life has been amazing yeah and that's that's a very difficult distinction for people to uh absorb when you hear that word because privilege right. is usually a word that we associate with very wealthy people the top one percent who have everything they could ever want for for you know a working class white person who slogs every day to hear that they are privileged is a difficult thing to hear and i actually understand mm -hmm. i understand that because power works in very complex ways it's not a simple for example it's not a simple case that all men dominate all women in a in a patriarchal or a male dominated right. society it's not the case that all white people have power over all black people there are many you know very well educated very affluent black americans who have a great deal of power but that doesn't mean that if they go to a hospital room um, they may not be treated differently. They may face racism in unexpected ways that are uh, less advantaged and um, and less affluent white person will not meet. So there are all these different layers here that coincide in any one individual. Um, and I think some I feel sometimes that the rhetoric of privilege and white supremacy and race and identity politics, while it's important because it kind of gives a language to the dynamics that we see out there in the world, can also be quite reductionist in damaging ways and in alienating ways, because ultimately uh, equality is good for everyone. If we can, if a society can accept that um, and, and embrace that black Americans are as capable and as beautiful as any other American, then that is a sign that that society can accept that anyone is capable of, of anything and, and beautiful in every way. That we're not, that, you know, when you break down one of those ways of dehumanizing a group, then you break down other ways of dehumanizing groups, including the rich and the poor, men and women, you know, all, all mm -hmm. the different other power dynamics then come into question. And I think or sometimes I worry that um, that gets lost. And that's the way to appeal to everyone, I think, ultimately. Where, you right. know, the ordinary white or Trump voter say that's the way to appeal to them to remind them that do you want to live in a society where everyone truly has equal opportunities and has an equal chance of becoming president one day or do you want to continue with this system in which only a very very tiny elite of people get to do what they want 
And then I guess the question becomes, what happens if somebody does look deep inside of themselves and they they give themselves an honest appraisal and their answer comes to be, you know, based on all sorts of influences, whether it be how they were raised by their family, their faith, their community, society as a whole. What if they look inward and they say, no, I do think that there are people who deserve this more. There are people <laughs> who are more capable because I'm wondering how. I think that is actually truly a prevalent view that there are a fair amount of people in the world who still have deep seated, you know, sexism, deep seated racism that maybe isn't like as overt as, like you said, we like to say when we go, that guy's such a misogynist or wow, that person is like an overt white supremacist. But this idea of rank ordering, this idea of categorization or these these stereotypes that people hold on to. Um, I'm reminded of sort of like that Jared Kushner interview recently. I don't know if you saw it on the news where he was trying to make some sort of wild claim that Trump had done more for the black Americans than any other president. (laughs) And he was going on and digging himself a deeper hole. And eventually he said the thing that's like, wow, what year is it? Where he goes, we want to help, you know, those who are less fortunate. I'm paraphrasing here you know, have all the opportunities, but we can't want it more than they want it themselves. (laughs) And you're like, oh, I see. I see. You Mm -hmm. truly believe that Black people are lazy or that Black people really don't want social mobility. And that's why they're not getting it. That's where I fear what happens when that undercurrent just it's so prevalent and it hasn't gone away. Yeah, it is still there. But I think we have to accept it's in every single one of us. These biases and stereotypes we're raised with because of the societies that we live in. I mean, I I know from my own life, my own experience, I'm very fortunate to have grown up in a very egalitarian family. We didn't have any distinction between men and women's work in my family when I was growing up. But when I went to school and because of the subject choices that I made, I was the only girl in a lot of my classes, um, in my physics and um, in my chemistry and maths classes. And I was the only mm-hmm. girl in a lot of my classes at university because I studied engineering. And I did internalize, despite my upbringing, this idea that perhaps I was different from other women, that men mm-hmm. uh, may be better at this subject than I was. And that's ignoring the fact that when I was at school, at least, I came top in, in most of my subjects. And there were a lot of boys in my class who were not academically brilliant. They were, you know, they right. were making different choices from the girls, but that's not because they were particularly better at these subjects than the girls were. Th- leaving that aside, I think this internalization based on what we observe in society is so, it's it's so common and it's so easy to do. You know, you, we, you cannot blame people for doing this because every single one of us does it. If the only, if, if every board chairman that you see looks like a white man, then you're going to start to think to yourself, well, maybe white men do this better. If every mm-hmm. pilot that you see when you, when you fly an airplane is a white man or a man, then you're going to start to think, well, maybe, you know, men are a bit better at flying this, these planes than, than, than women are. It's just a natural I'm not saying it's logical because there's so many other explanations for what you're seeing, but it's a very natural trap to fall into. And scientists have fallen into it. Even the best scientists have fallen into it. Darwin fell into it, for goodness sake. He looked at Victorian society around him and he just thought that women were less evolved than men because if they weren't, then they would be doing the same jobs as men, (laughs) ignoring, of course, that... How were they supposed to do the same jobs as them when they didn't have the same level of education or access even to university or the professions? So, you know, we kind of, it's the lazy person's explanation 
for the world around them. But we all do it. You know, this is how stereotypes form. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder sometimes about the psychology kind of of once I admit, because it's like you said, look around you, see patterns, see structures, and they're reinforced. And you kind of the easy or or the lazy approach is to say, this is the natural order of things. Yeah. And as you said yourself, ignoring the fact that there were barriers, right? So the big thing mm-hmm. that's being ignored in the algorithm here is oppression. And I wonder sometimes if the psychology of ignoring oppression is such that it's it's like a guilt avoidance thing. Like, if I can pretend yeah. like it's not because of oppression, I know then that I don't have to admit that I had a hand in it. Yeah, and nobody wants to nobody wants to think that they got the job that they did because life is a little bit easier for them because of the group that they happen to belong to. Um, mm. Everyone feels that they got to where they are in life because they worked hard and they deserve it. <laughs> I've never met a person who doesn't feel that way. And... Um, And I can, you know, again, I can understand that. You know, one of the books that really helped me navigate this issue is Biased by Jennifer Eberhardt. She's a wonderful psychologist at Stanford. She works with American police forces to combat institutional racism. She was a victim of institutional racism herself. Well, I I say institutional, but of police racism herself. She was stopped, I think, when she was a Harvard graduate or postgraduate student um she was stopped in her car and and um quite you know quite brutally stopped and what is remarkable about um jennifer is that she looks at this and asks not she doesn't assign blame to one mm. group or the other what she does is assign assign blame to the system that makes victims of us all. You know, the white supremacist is also a victim here, as well as being a perpetrator, they're also a victim. Because how horrible to have to live your life with this warped worldview that damages you by making you so hateful, by not allowing you to live in harmony with other people, of seeing the beauty in other people. But, you know, this kind of deep-seated hatred where the only joy you can get in being yourself is by believing that you belong to some kind of superior racial group that is that is a, a court that is a damage in itself that is a psychological physical damage too and what is what is great about the way jennifer works is by seeing recognizing that and and drawing people out of these ways of thinking by engaging wh- with that deep down misery or depression or whatever it is that they feel in themselves that leads them down that path of wanting to hate other people yeah, I, gosh, that's so important. It's so important a for the um the attempt and really the movement to affecting change. I think it's also important, you know, just in the academic literature, like when we're doing quality research in this area and publishing in this area, really trying to learn about these systemic problems to be able to sort of do it in I don't want to say a dispassionate way, but in a way that is like truly empathetic for for all parties involved. I think the part that I struggle with, and I can say this point blank, my growing edge is that there are times as a woman, for example, especially like when I'm working on the SGU as the only woman on the show, where you get these just overtly sexist comments <laughs> and emails and you want to explain in a way that's a little bit like more passive or that's a little bit more like understanding to say, hey, have you thought about looking at it this way? Or let me show you, I didn't make that off the cuff comment that there's actually a, a, 
of real literature um, supporting what I was saying the other day. And, and let me share that with you. But there's also a part of you inside that's like, no, but I'm angry and I'm a little tired of yeah. having to like wear kid gloves and and navigate around the fragile egos of the sexist people. Yeah. Yes. who are constantly, you know, who I'm constantly being affronted with. Like, that's the part that I struggle with a little because there are days when I'm like, okay, I can do this. And there are days where I'm like, you know what? F you. Like, yeah, you I completely say understand. that to a woman. <laughs> I completely get it. And, yeah. you know, that was part of the reason that I wrote Inferior and especially wrote it the way that I did is that I didn't have in my mind, although it's a book that's widely read by women and I, and for me personally, as a woman, it changed the way I think about myself and, and about womanhood, which I think mm -hmm. is important. But I wrote it largely with those people in my head, those sexists, you know, those people who have these entrenched ideas and need to be drawn out of them. Because I was tired. Like, I mean, as you say, you just get tired of having to engage in these arguments all the time, you know, being forced, uh, being driven to give evidence to support what you're saying, which should be self-evident, which should be common mm -hmm. knowledge to everybody. And I just felt finally I could get it all down in book, book format and just say, I don't need to explain myself because it's all written down here. And if you don't want to read it, then that's on you. You, know, right. you, don't, you don't have to, if your ignorance is your choice, um, but I don't have to argue with you about this. And we shouldn't have to argue. I mean, how oh, unfair gosh. that we have to justify our equality, our capacity, our humanity every single day to people who don't believe it. If you're not willing to take the frankly the scientific approach to understanding inequality then you cannot call yourself a rationalist you just can't mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and i struggle with that within the scientific skeptical community you know i work a lot within skeptical circles and of course we know that skepticism has a woman problem and we know that skepticism has a race problem and i think part of it comes down to sort of the libertarian ideological bent that a lot of skeptics seem to have um, and i think some of it comes down to a, a fundamental misunderstanding of phenomenology and of science and of like, you know, how do we know what we know? Um, well, uh, you know, I think a lot of skeptics will would argue that we can really only know what we know if there's been a, you know, double blind randomized control trial. And it's like, yeah. that is not the only way to achieve knowledge. Mm. We have yeah. to be careful to not reduce everything to if I can't prove it in a, in a study, it doesn't even exist or it's not even meaningful. Yeah. And, you know, the real world doesn't work that way. Human beings right. are not, ra you, you know, we're not, you cannot randomize us in that way. You can't study racism through trials in that way that's you you know you just can't do that you might be able to understand the psychology of racism or aspects of it but mm. you need history here what you need is an understanding of social history of culture of politics going all the way back that is the only thing that can explain the world as we see it now this assumption that science you know this kind of hard science can explain everything it's just not true when it comes to human relations it's just i mean it's just it's ridiculous to think that that's possible. Completely agree. At, or that like, if it's not scientific, we shouldn't be asserting ourselves or we shouldn't be making <laughs> arguments because they're, you know, oh, that's obviously tinged by your bias. That's obviously t tinged by your ideology, unless you can point to a publication. Like it ignores two things. Number one, that everything is biased and everything yeah. is tinged by ideology. Mm -hmm. And number two, that the only way to know what we know is again through those kinds of trials. But I, I think that's why I love your book so much, because they sort of 
take this approach and tell me if if I'm if I'm sort of misinterpreting maybe the intent or the journey, but they take this approach of saying like this is where we are now and mm-hmm. let's try and unpack how we got to where we are now mm-hmm. and what were the driving forces, what were the motivations, what were the ideologies. Um you know throughout and again throughout science you're a science writer and this is really taking that lens of race science, um, gender science, or really specifically how women have been sort of mistreated, not just in positions of scientific authority, like training, education, you know, um, professorships, things like that, but also the the research, how women have been systematically ignored in like biological research, for example. Yeah. And I think, you know, you can, you can actually take a scientific approach to history. I mean, as you say, you can look at some social phenomenon and you can say, okay, what different ways do I have of explaining what I see? So for example, uh, let's take women in physics. We don't see as many women physics professors as we do male physics professors, at least in the West. That uh, That's not true in all countries, but certainly in the West. Now, um, one way of explaining that is that women are just biologically less capable of doing physics. That's one way to explain it. Another way to explain it is that women have been historically excluded from scientific institutions and universities. And culturally, then we are trying to keep up, you know, Mm -hmm. regain that uh, level playing field now. Um, Another way to explain it is sexism within the physics community, which is there. We have evidence of it because we still have physicists writing these kind of weird essays and articles arguing that women can't do what they do. So that's definitely a factor. Um, Mm -hmm. We have abuse and harassment. We know, you know, there are these Me Too cases finally coming out in the sciences showing that there are physicists out there who are guilty of harassing people that they've worked with. And doesn't that drive women out of the sciences as well? So there's a multitude of different ways of explaining the evidence that we see. For me, the least scientific and least rational way of explaining what we see is to jump to biology first. Because human cultures and human choices, human behavior is not just about biology. We know that. I mean, we live in so many different ways. Humans live in a multitude of ways. In our lifetime, we can change our cultures and and the ways in which we live. So why would we imagine that kind of biology is constraining us to such an extent that it shapes you know, whether a woman studies physics or not, that is, you know, it really just bends all logic to make that kind of statement. And yet, again and again, throughout history and even into the present day, we see otherwise smart people, smart men, particularly within the sciences, making these kind of arguments. And that to me, just shows me their ignorance of everything else. You know, to only be able to have that one kind of explanation in your head just goes to show how lacking you are in in an understanding of history, of, of the social sciences, of humanity. That is the kind of gap that I think we need to fill. We can't have science siloed in that way. Yeah, and it almost shows a sort of privilege that there are individuals who exist within the scientific community or even individuals who aren't, you know, professional scientists, but who kind of see themselves as more scientific thinkers or as more like uh, scientific skeptics who kind of go to this weird genetic essentialist place first, almost because they're like, oh, I don't need to be bothered with the social sciences. Those aren't real sciences and they don't interest me. I'm a real scientist. 
So yeah. I get to focus on the hard science. It, mm-hmm. There's like a snobbery in that. And yeah. It's, yeah. it's so misguided. But weirdly, it's a bias that I see again and again and again and again. Yeah, it's a real problem. I mean, I, I imagine hopefully it's less of a problem in the US where at least you have that liberal arts system in your in undergraduate teaching. But here in the UK, we don't even have that. So from 16 onwards, you're expected to specialize in certain subjects. And you may never, you know, if you study, if you want to study engineering like I did, you may never pick up a history book again. You may never pick up a work of social science or the humanities ever again. And what a loss that is. It really does such, I think, damage to our understanding of the world and the question, kind of questions that we ask as scientists and as engineers, because we literally do not understand the world in context. We don't understand yeah. humans in context. It's just a bizarre way of training people into these disciplines. We shouldn't be surprised then that there are even Nobel Prize winners out there who hold the most bizarre views around sex and race, because if from the age of 16, that's the kind of training that they've had, what do you expect? It's so funny, too, because it's almost there's almost an irony in the fact that it's basically ignoring what we do know about neurobiology and human development, that really at, at 16, the things that you take out of a history class or a philosophy class or anything sort of in the liberal arts or social sciences is lacking the amount of life experience and contextualization and wisdom to really put it into perspective. And so the older that you get and the more life experience you have, the more when you read history, it's meaningful to you. You know, yeah. the more when yeah. you dig into philosophy, it's actually something that you can you can contextualize in your mind. But when you're so young, you know, you take your your middle school, as we call it here, and your high school uh, history classes, and it's just cataloging dates. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's not it's really finding facts, like, yeah, accumulating yeah. facts about the past. It's almost hard for you to empathize mm-hmm. with like these dusty old white dudes with guns. Mm-hmm. And like, and then as you get older, you start to really think about, you know, historical conflict and conquest mm-hmm. and, and, um, you know, oppression and, and regime change. And you start to put yourself in the shoes of the individuals who lived there. And, yeah. and of course, reading history that wasn't always written by the victor, too, I think is pretty important for that yeah. kind of empathy. And it's only really in kind of university level and above social science texts that you start to get um, a critical understanding of mm-hmm. of knowledge. You know, you try to... Either, only then can you understand that there is a history of knowledge, that knowledge is culturally embedded, that there are ser- there are ways of critiquing it. There are feminist critiques of science and technology. There are racial critiques of science and technology. You really have to be at university or, you know, read independently as an adult to engage with that kind of literature. And what's disappointing to me is is how few scientists engage with that literature. But that said, I have to say that I, I've been doing a lot of university talks this year and younger students now really are starting to engage with it. I think because of the social justice movements that we see out there, because of the, because they want to know. It's mm-hmm. not necessarily that universities are driving it, although I think that is starting to happen now. But I think young people just want to know. There is no medical young medical student now who wants to be told there are racial differences in outcome in hypertension and not question that. You know, right. not not ask where are they coming actually, from? Where does that yeah. come from? precisely um so that's that to me is heartening and i wonder if that is one of the benefits of the internet that we have access to Mm -hmm. this broader kind of um social sense around science 
Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Yeah, and, and just access to different people of different backgrounds, you know, being able to make the world smaller in that way and connect to people who don't think like yourself. Um, obviously, we also have the technology and the power to just continue to silo ourselves and, and amplify our <laughs> echo chambers. I'm, I'm interested, do you guys have this sort of social movement, I guess, or, or, or view in the UK that we often see reiterated, probably, you know, obviously within conservative circles here in the US, that education is like liberal indoctrination that you know advanced uh. education is just a way <laughs> to kind of teach people liberal thought there is an element of that that's kind of seeping into debates at the moment i don't mm -hmm. you know there are there are i mean i i see for myself on certain social media forums that people especially the people on the kind of far end of the scientific racist spectrum mm -hmm. so the alt writers the far writers who say that um science is under the yoke of some kind of liberal left-wing sometimes they will say jewish conspiracy right and, yeah and, and it, then, and it then they've really shown their cards when they say that. <laughs> yeah, yeah they really yeah. have <laughs> well they will euphemize it you know they will talk about cosmopolitanism and other euphemisms for jewish mm -hmm. um and there is an element of that uh in the debates happening, but I wouldn't say it's an overwhelming one. I think by and large, there is trust in what universities are doing. Um, mm -hmm. Although there are calls on the other side for STEM to be decolonized um, for right. a broadening of curricula, which is um, a, a really positive move, I think. And that's coming not just from academics, but from students themselves. And students have a lot of power now because we introduced tuition fees in this country <laughs> about 20 years ago. And um, so students have a lot of influence over what universities can do now. Oh, okay. That's interesting. You know, when when I kind of going back to some of the the historical um, and and I know that we haven't really gotten deep into, oh, in the book, you mentioned this one story about so-and-so, and, you know, this is how we know X or one of the ways that we know Y, because, of course, I want people to read the book. We're talking sort of in more thematic generalizations <laughs> about some of the takeaways. Um, I thought it was really uh, sort of 
hmm, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, like a happy coincidence that your episode is going to air only two weeks after the episode that I was able to record with Lulu Miller, who wrote Why Fish Don't Exist, um, which was a deep dive into, you know, this kind of kooky mad scientist taxonomist who uh, spent his whole life catching and cataloging fish, um, but who ultimately the deeper that she got into it, you know, she learned about this really dark eugenicist past and these really interesting links between categorizing, yep. naming, you know, rank mm-hmm. ordering. Like, it, there seems mm-hmm. to be this deep connection between taxonomy and, I don't know, value judgments, comparing this group mm-hmm. to that group, this trait to that trait. How mm-hmm. can I say this one is better or that one is worse? Almost like, I don't know, there's something deeply human in wanting to label things. And then with the label comes comes a value judgment. And I'm interested in your take on that. Do you think that's what's really underlying a lot of the racist and sexist um, uh, scientific movements of the past and even today? I haven't read that book. It sounds fascinating. Oh, though. it's amazing. Yeah, highly recommend. <laughs> and I, you know, I struggle with this idea that humans are somehow programmed to categorize things Mm -hmm. or to name things, because actually not all cultures think about these things in the same way. So for example, my mom doesn't know her birth date. Um, (laughs) All she has, she has a, she has a, you know, she's got a birth date that she uses, but as far as her family are aware, that probably isn't the correct date. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's in October, but her sisters think that she was probably born in the summer from what they remember. Um, She comes from a large Indian family. She grew up in India. And at that time in history, that wasn't that long ago, you know, 60, 70 years ago, there were a lot of... um, Many people didn't know their birth dates. It, it wasn't just it wasn't information that was necessarily useful to them, so they didn't collect it or they didn't write it down. And this idea that we need to name things, number things, catalog things, document things is actually a peculiarly European one, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So it's very not, Western. Yeah, it is. It is quite Western. That's not to say that other cultures don't have them too. And certainly, India now is a very bureaucratic country that does collect lots of lots of data like that. But um, I don't know if we can necessarily describe it as part of human nature. I think possibly it's right. more complex than that. I do think it's an embedded part of Western science, and. And if we recognize it's a part of Western science, but not necessarily part of human nature, then we can start to understand that perhaps it's also loaded in some ways. You know, just Mm -hmm. the act of classification, the act of dividing up a species, including the human species, into categories. and, And as you say, then assuming that there are some differences between the species and then it's a very it, between these these groups and then it's just a short jump to placing value judgments on those differences um it's not something we necessarily need to do we don't necessarily have to group in that way it's such an ingrained part of science we can't imagine not doing it you know it's a very it's one of the first thing things that european enlightenment naturalists did was they went around the world and started classifying and drawing up these taxonomies. Um, but what if we didn't do that? What, what, uh, just say, for example, if we never grouped humans, we don't have to group us. 
So why why do we do it in science or in or in other, any other work of walk of life? Why do we do it? And I think that's an interesting thought experiment because humans, as we know now unequivocally, we don't fall into natural categories. There are no yeah. natural subdivisions between us. Um, even sex, arguably, I mean, there are some people who feel that is more distinct uh, than others. But many scientists will tell you that there is a fuzzy area there between male and female. It's not mm-hmm. as clear cut as it seems. And certainly racial groups are arbitrary. There's no you know, natural subdivision there. Um, so why do we do it? <laughs> you know, why do we persist with this? Why do population geneticists, even now in the 21st century, still do it? And yeah, I can't help feeling question. it's culturally loaded as a as I an think endeavor. it probably is. And I, I and I wonder if it's you know it's culturally loaded. And I wonder if because of that cultural loading or, or related to that cultural loading, there isn't a sort of psychological comfort that comes. With um, for the individuals who who see the world that way, which is most of us in the West, um, you know, how can we not? It's sort of the world we live in. Um, there's a sort of comfort in order that it's sort of imposing the order prevents us from feeling, you know, uncontained. It keeps us from feeling chaotic. Um, you know, our how we relate to other people, how we relate to nature, how we relate to ourselves. A lot of it is very individualistic. It's very categorized. It's very labeled, um, you know, disease states, wellness, um, gosh, it, it, how people identify just a sense of identity. I am a writer or I am a psychologist or, you know, it's like usually if you ask somebody about their identity, they're going to name their job or they're going to name their their motherhood or their. And it's, it is really interesting that you're right in some other cultures, this sort of lack of boundaries and lack of hard lines that are imposed on top of the natural sort of um, order in the world don't seem to, you know, they don't seem to be there. But I'm wondering if it's almost like, you know, like you said, what if we don't do it? That's an interesting thought experiment. It's almost impossible within the constraints <laughs> of the culture that we live in to actually achieve that. Yeah. But I'm wondering how how responsible it is. I don't know if we can really cause an effect here, but definitely I think we can correlate how responsible and how tied is the act of categorization and the act of imposing um groups to all of these fundamental uh you know superiority problems racism sexism you know transphobia all of these different things that we see in in modern western culture um i mean i personally and i've posed this question to scientists um I feel we should do away with groups altogether within the sciences at least i do think we need them as we do need to recognize social categories when uh, there are social factors involved. So, for instance, when we want to understand race and health, we need to then have those racial categories there to understand the impact of structural racism, systemic racism on the health mm. of an individual. Um, so that makes difference. What I worry about is that what we see too often happening is that scientists conflate those social categories with biological ones. Yes, um, yes. And it happens so routinely. I mean, especially in medical research, it's just rife in medical research these days that you will take, that they will take categories like black and white and treat them as though they're actual biological categories when they were never actual biological categories. And this, I think, is the risk of classification, is it scientizes things, it biologizes things that are not necessarily biological. And yeah. 
we we can't help it. I mean, this is this is um, one of the tricks. I think the psychological tricks that science sometimes plays on us is that in you know you think that if you can measure it, if you can use a long word to describe it, is that somehow it's more real. Right. It's not, yeah. it's not necessarily more real. Of course it isn't. No, they're all fuzz. I mean, this <laughs> is a big argument that you see. You know, I keep going back to these psychology examples because that's where I'm so um, buried right now in my work. But you see it like with the DSM-4, right? The Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, this idea of like, what is depression? What is bipolar? What is schizophrenia? And of course, people want it to be medical. And they want to say, oh, it's just like saying, what is diabetes? Well, I have these pathognomonic things. I can look at the, you know, the beta cells and I can, you know, measure these blood levels and and say, okay, this is a picture of somebody with this disease. Well, it doesn't work that way in psychology. It doesn't work that way to say, oh, well, is this depression clinical or not? I don't know. Does it meet these five criteria? Is this not a normal response to an abnormal situation? Is the issue that this person is sick or is it the issue that this person is trying to make sense of a sick world? Um, and, you know, those those kinds of things I think are important to grapple with. W- one more quick example um, in this course that I'm taking on, on um, integrative assessment, I remember in, in class, we were having a conversation about, you know, when you're listing demographic information at the top, and I said something like, um, uh, Afro-Caribbean woman of Panamanian origin, second generation. And some people were like, yeah, you know, and we worry about categorizing. So sometimes I wonder if we shouldn't just take it off. And I'm like, if you don't include that, then you don't include the conversation about what it means socially to exist in the world with black skin. And I think that's the thing that's so important to not ignore. You know, the fact that a person has black skin does not make them biologically different than anybody else, except for that gene that codes for melanin. That's the only thing. It doesn't like come along with all these behaviors and traits. That said, socially having black skin makes their experience in the world achingly different from mine. Yeah. But I think and if we ignore that, that's also, I think, almost just as detrimental. Yeah, it is. But uh, like I said before, the conflation needs to be avoided. And right. it's too easy. It's so tempting. You know, and a lot of doctors um, these days are, are trained in a system that makes them feel that that these categories are biological. It's, it's mm-hmm. just so, you know, it's so ridiculously common and it's only just starting in the last 10 years or so to be challenged in a in a in a in the way that it needs to be challenged in the full kind of really paradigm shifting way that it needs to be challenged but i think one of the other things that complicates it is the data that we collect so we collect data on gender and race what we don't collect is socioeconomic status i mean that right. has a huge impact on health so much so that here in the uk richer and poorer people have a life expectancy gap between them. And that gap has actually been getting bigger over the last 10 years. So I would love to see more data on that. If we're going to include things, social determinants of health, those variables, and we need to collect things like socioeconomic status, we need to collect diet. Most of the things that kill us are lifestyle diseases, you know, heart attacks, Mm -hmm. strokes, heart disease, uh, diabetes, and they are heavily impacted by how you live, the exercise that you get, the diet that you have, and and we collect next to no data on on those kind of variables. So we need to kind of broaden out the way that we think about these things, and it will help us understand racial and gender inequality as well. So, for example, in some countries where families don't have enough to eat, 
women, studies have shown this, women will sometimes give the food to the rest of their family first and they will eat last. So they will eat less. And so that's gender and socioeconomic status intersecting in a way that impacts the health of that woman. Um, in, um, in this country, COVID-19, I mean, this, a lot was made of this, but in March, April, we saw huge ethnic minority disparities in outcome. So many more mm -hmm. Asian and black people, especially Asian doctors dying at the beginning of the pandemic. Well, as the pandemic wore on and the disease kind of moved out of London, which is a minority white British city into the, into the regions, um, some of the hardest hit areas were actually heavily white, so largely white areas, but very, very poor. And because we right. don't have socioeconomic data, we can't correlate that with not only race risk, but also poverty risk, which overlap, you know, in, in somewhere like London. So I think we need that kind of fine grained analysis to understand the disparities that we see in society. And that, and that almost requires, it's almost like instead of completely doing away with groups, it requires a more intersectional understanding of group dynamics because groups do form sometimes, you know, we, we impose groups, but then we also naturally sort of, um, I don't think there's a natural order of like, you know, like we were talking about race and, and, and these sort of like, uh, imposed labels that we put on top. But but I wonder too about sort of this factor analytic for anybody who's a statistics nerd idea that there are certain people who tend to cluster with people who are like them in certain ways. You know, I don't have a lot of friends that are like deeply, devoutly religious. I don't have a lot of friends that's not true. I do have religious friends, but I don't have a lot of even I don't have evangelical friends, right? I don't have a lot of friends who are like hardcore Trump supporting MAGA hat wearing conservatives um, simply because I, I don't have a lot in common with them. <laughs> well, that makes sense. The, I think the problem with that kind of level of analysis is that it's good when you're looking at the population level, when you're trying to understand mm -hmm, mm -hmm. large, uh, large patterns in society. It's absolutely useless at the individual level. You know, it doesn't absolutely. really help. And you're right. And and we we mix those things up an awful lot. We can look at the forest, we can look at the trees, but we have to use different tools to do so. And we don't, uh, we want to think that there's a one size fits all sort of metric to be able to do that. And you're right, that's an absolute, absolute problem. Uh, I want to, because we're, we're, we're running low on time, and I feel like to take it back to sort of the core arguments. And we, we, we talked about this before, this idea of how scientifically it's so sort of easy. And so many people are so quick to move to a sort of biological essentialist explanation for things. And so I, I sort of want to um, channel and empathize with the individuals who are listening to the show right now who are who still have sticking in their craw this idea of, of like, but aren't there differences? Aren't there still some <laughs> differences? And I want to try and maybe play devil's advocate with you because I think people kind of know where I stand on this idea. Um, and say, you know, but really, is it really fully a construct or is it somewhere <laughs> in between? Are there actually differences between races that are measurable? Are there ac actually differences, biological differences between genders that are measurable? And where where does this all net out? Well, actually, when I started writing Inferior and Superior, I was 
quite open to that possibility that there were differences, mm-hmm. and especially with inferior. I actually expected the data to show that there were some profound psychological differences, especially around things like spatial awareness, verbal reasoning, which we so commonly associate with one sex or another. The fact that the data doesn't show that just, right. just was it was actually a quite an affront to my identity my sense of self. Because like I said, uh, when I was growing up, I'd internalized this idea that I was maybe different from other women because I enjoyed physics and maths and I wanted to do engineering at university. What the data had made me confront was the fact that there were different reasons why I was the only girl in those rooms. And those reasons were, number one, I grew up in a very egalitarian family. My dad was an engineer. And because he was an engineer, I thought I could be an engineer. And almost every other girl I know was not getting that message. That was number one. Um, And number two, um, just society as a whole influences the, the micro choices that we make every day. And you know, encourages us to choose the path of least resistance all the time. So, for example, imagine in my school, we had very many academically bright girls. Now, if you are a bright girl at 16 deciding what you want to do with your life and you are told that we would love you to become an engineer, but there's a lot of sexism there and it's very hard and, you know, it's a it's a very masculine industry. It's very difficult. But if you become a doctor, there are loads of women doctors out there and you will do really well and you'll earn well and your life will be great. Then what are you going to do? Of course. You, know, you may be just as good as that, you know, at physics and maths as the, as the other boys in your class, but you're going to pick the path of less resistance. And that is the same reason why, for example, there are so many Indian doctors or Indian origin doctors here in the UK. So generation after generation of Indian heritage family are sending kids to medical school. Why are they doing that? Why are they not, you know, there is some diversification now, but why do they still do that in such large numbers? And that's because historically, um, the UK encouraged doctors from the colonies or from the former colonies, from the Commonwealth, to come and work in the UK. They gave them jobs and they made their lives relatively easy for them in relation to other professions. Um, Mm -hmm. And it became an accepted kind of professional route for Indian kids. You know, here is a job that you can do where life will not be as difficult for you as if you do another job. You won't face the same kind of racism or barriers. And it's not to say you won't face any, but it will be easier for you. And that's why people choose choose that degree then as a result. We, we shouldn't be shocked by that. It's not because Indian people are any better at being doctors than any other racial group or ethnic group. It's just that, you know, these are cultural factors that in small and large ways influence our everyday choices. And those kind of micro choices that we make, those little subtle messages we get from the very day that we're born all the way up to adulthood, you know, when we're making the big decisions about our life, fundamentally can have a huge impact on how society looks, a, you know, truly profound impact on demographics and the way that society is structured. Um, we don't interrogate that enough. So I would say, you know, to those of you in your devil's ad- advocate role who are just, who are, who are kind of not fully convinced, I would say, maintain your skepticism if you want, you know, maintain your view that possibly there are biological explanations out there. But if you want to be really rational about this, then you have to look at all the other explanations there are. You know, you really have to exhaust them before you go to biology because 
the psychological evidence that we have, and you know, race is a social construct, so it's very difficult to get biological evidence there. But even on gender, there is not good psychological evidence to suggest that there are profound differences in the way that men and women fundamentally think or our intellectual capacities. You really have to, you know, exhaust every other avenue before you go there. And if you really feel you've exhausted every other avenue, then fine. But you know. Try that first. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. But yeah, don't go there. For, you know, it's so... I remember when I was talking to Adam Rutherford on the show uh, several months ago, and it was kind of right at the beginning of the pandemic, or maybe halfway through because he had just gotten um, gotten over it because um, he had COVID. And we were talking about how it was sort of what you opened that, that explanation with, this idea that by and large, uh, we were seeing poorer outcomes for kind of black and brown people in both the U.S. and the U.K. And that there are, you know, a million explanations, institutional and systemic explanations for that. Yet so many people, you would see all of these papers and all of these news articles that are like, could it be a vitamin D thing? It's probably vitamin D. It must have (laughs) to do with vitamin D. And I remember talking to him and talking about, okay, when we talk about sort of uh, scientific explanations for things that are multifaceted. There's there's variance. There's a hundred percent of the variance within some sort of explanation is accounted for by different things. It's a zero sum game, right? So if it's this percentage has to do with uh, uh, being low SES, this percentage has to do with you know access to medical care. This percentage has to do with bias. If you, when you do get the medical care, blah, blah, blah. Why is it that so many people want to go to, it's 100% because of their genes? Or even 50%, you know, genes are really the very last explanation that you should go to. It's the first explanation so many people went to when it came to, oh, Black people are faring poorer in COVID. It must be because there's something about being Black that makes them more susceptible about their, their biological Blackness when it's like, why would you even think that first when the other, the vast majority of the variants that would lead to that, we already have good evidence on because it's the same reason black people are more likely to have diabetes and black people are more likely to have lower infant mortality. And this is just another example on the pile. So it's like we already have the evidence of the systemic yeah. problems, the, the racism that underlies this. Yet each new disease Oh, maybe this one, maybe this time (laughs) we can come up with a biological explanation. It's just fascinating. Yeah, but I think that's because science isn't just about facts. You know, these facts about race being a social construct, about the fact that we are one human species, that we are genetically more similar to each other, more homogeneous than 
any other primate. All of those facts we have known for a very long time. Mm-hmm. And they've been clear, clearly there. Why is the narrative not different? And that's because science isn't just about these simple biological facts. It's also about the stories that we tell around those facts. And the story we have told around race for so long is that there's something innate to it. There's something visceral about it. If you're going to dismantle that narrative and, and start a different one, then we need to start treating race, thinking about race and ethnicity as not, not as a biological quantity, but as a social one in the same way that we think about class as a social quantity. And um, that requires quite a big change in mindset in the way that a lot of scientists work, actually, and especially in medical research, um, you know, to fundamentally just move out of one scheme of thinking into another to build a different set of narratives around the data that we have is really very, very difficult. Yeah, it's almost, I mean, it it does require like one of these Cunian type um, shifts, (laughs) right? This like almost, and, 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 and as he points to in the structure of scientific revolutions, like it means people usually have to get old and they have to die. And a new group of people who have a new worldview have to come in and reconceptualize these things. And, and you know, it may take multiple generations. Uh, it may never completely change. But, but I, I, I do agree with you, as you pointed to earlier in the show, that we are seeing a different mentality in... Um, in younger and more sort of globally connected and technologically um, proficient uh, um, scholars. And that's, yeah. that's really promising. Yeah, I do see that happening. But at the same time, one of the forces militating against that among the young as well as in older scholars is um, identity politics, which I think is necessary. We need identity politics. You know, we can't fight for our rights unless we recognize identity, social identity. Um, But the problem is it's so, especially in the social media age, it so easily becomes weaponized in, Mm -hmm. um, in ways that mislead people about what these identities actually mean. You know, these right. are social identities we're talking about. They have a visceral impact on our bodies. They can have a visceral impact on health outcomes as a result. But that doesn't mean that um, they are any more biological than they ever were. And sometimes the narratives within identity politics movements can lean towards that, can lead, lean towards imagining that there's something, there is something visceral about us that, that you know, there is something deep down that makes you who you are, belonging to a certain group when actually that was never the case. It's it's about experience. It's about cultural experience. It's about history. It's about all those things, but it's not about biology. And I think even right. now, f- for a lot of people, that's a hard thing to let go, especially, um, for example, in my case, I'm the child of immigrants. It's especially hard to let go for us because our over generations, our connections, to our, um, you know, our heritage, our cultural heritage in other countries becomes weaker and weaker. And all we have left is society's perception that we are different based on our skin color or or our appearance. And so we want to believe that there's something deep down that connects us to our heritage when actually it's just racism (laughs) that Mm -hmm. is forcing us to do that sometimes, that is denying us the opportunity to feel as British as any other British person, as any other white British person. Um, And it creates this kind of, um, it hardens identities in ways that 
it sh- they shouldn't be hardened. So it, it works in the other direction. And that happens within the sciences too. So I see very well-meaning uh, scientists of color sometimes and women scientists talking about uh, gender difference or racial difference in inappropriate ways, not talking about it as though these are social phenomena that we're, that they're seeing, but talking about them as though, you know, we need to include black people in clinical trials because drugs tested on white people won't work on black people. That is right. just nonsense. I mean, it's really dangerous to make those kind of statements, but I see people doing that and we have to be very mindful of that. Right. We need to include black people in clinical trials because their lived experience is significantly different. And so their outcomes might be different. And not just that. We're all different as individuals. So clinical trials need to be broader for lots of different reasons, mm-hmm. not least with age. I mean, COVID-19, the biggest discrepancy that we see is around age and clinical trials are generally done on younger people. So, you know, this right. is a big, big issue now in this current pandemic that we don't have data on older people. You know, I think that the, the point that you just made is is sort of a good one to bring us back full circle and to start to kind of button things up. And that's this idea of sort of identity and whether we're talking about personal identity, who am I and how do I relate to my larger world, or whether we're talking about um, dogmatism within the sciences. You know, how do I define this thing or this group and what are its traits and and how do I write about that within the literature? And I think what um, what I sort of take away uh, from your books, from, for example, Lulu's writing, and and just from thinking about these issues on the whole, is not that I want to disintegrate identity, or not that I want to disintegrate the concept of of even groups, but that I want to I want to introspect with regards to them and think about them as something that's iterative. Think about them as something that has you know, a wavy, wigglier, wobblier, fuzzier distinction and understand that these are experiences. They're made up of experiences that we are imposing. And just like you mentioned early, you know, when it comes to race, races or actually I would say sex is a great example of something that a lot of people think of as being entrenched. They think of it as being natural. They think of it as being some sort of like fundamental quality of the world. And then on the other end, let's say something like religion. A lot of people would accept nobody's born Catholic. Your parents are Catholic and they teach you Catholicism. And it might become so central to your identity that it's as if you were born Catholic. But obviously, that's a social construct. And and all things fall in that continuum. But for some reason, we feel the need to think about some as being more entrenched and some as being more fluid when ultimately they're all fluid. Yeah. And it's politics that has done that. You know, the politics of slavery and colonialism and everything else, the way that we treat each other, uh, the relationships that we have with other people, all of that gives more, uh, hardens some identities rather than others, um, changes the way that we think about identity. I mean, take class, for instance. You know, the early British eugenics movement was almost all about class. It was about designating the underclass, the residuum as they described it, as this kind of entrenched, genetically, biologically um, inferior group of people who would never be able to lift themselves out of poverty over generations because they were just passing these poverty traits, criminality, low intelligence, all of this down over generations. And we don't think about class in that way now. I mean, it, yeah. it may be at the back of our heads, certainly, and, and, the, and Britain remains a very classist society in some ways, but we don't biologize it in that way, by and large. 
You know, we accept yeah. that that was a that was an incorrect way of thinking about people. And I hope that happens with race. I hope that we can come to a point where we understand that the that the differences we see out there in society are not all biological. And I'm not talking about individual differences here. I'm talking about group differences. There mm-hmm. are, of course, individual differences. You know, we each have our particular talents as individuals. But this group difference idea is just so damaging. And you, yeah. you need history to understand that. This is not a science question. This is a history question. A hundred percent agree. I think that, you know, that really sort of, it buttons up and I think has been a, a really good sort of entree into into your books for those who haven't read them, that these are the arguments that are made with a lot of really compelling evidence, guys, like a lot of, you know, interesting, um, uh, important stories and compelling evidence. So that these are not, you know, um, hypotheses without investigation. Um, and so, Angela, you know, uh, I think at this point, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you my closing two questions that I ask everybody who I have on the show. But before I do, I just wanted to make sure, if, is there anything that we didn't quite get to? Do you, I mean, obviously, we could talk for hours and hours, but <laughs> is there anything that you're like, oh, gosh, I wish we would have, you know, at least thrown this out there? No, I think that was really good. I mean, your questions are excellent. I get asked the same thing again and again, but this has been so fascinating for me because oh gosh, we've talked about oh. stuff I don't usually talk about, which is really oh, nice. I'm glad to hear. Her. Oh, I, I and I had just a wonderful time. I I, I just learned so much reading your work and and, and oh, having the opportunity you. to talk to you now too. So so now I'm really interested it. because I have these closing two questions that are sort of big picture questions. Are you yeah. ready to to take a yeah, take a stab sure. at them? Okay, okay, so. The first one, they both have to do with the future. So for both of these questions, I want you to think about the future in whatever context is relevant to you. And obviously, we're living through a global pandemic. You know, you have your own personal life, you have your work, but there are even cosmological um, uh, contexts. And I want you to answer it however you like. Um, Number one, what is the thing that is keeping you up the most at night, the thing you're most worried about, maybe even like pessimistic or or even cynical about and then on the flip side of that what are you sort of authentically and and truly hopeful for what are you actually (laughs) looking forward to well um what worries me is the rise of populism all over the world i think um the election of biden is a positive step for the u.s because it does at least signal a move perhaps away from that but that doesn't mean there aren't ethnic nationalist and populist movements all over the world that are clamping down harder, not least in, in Europe. I mean, in Hungary, Poland, Russia, there have been moves towards entrenching, uh, for example, traditional ideas around gender. In Hungary, where I was last year, I was in Budapest just after the government banned gender studies um, wow. as a discipline, which is hugely devastating to intellectual freedom, to women's rights, to gender rights, mm-hmm. LGBTQ rights, all of that. Um, so there are forces in the world that worry me. I hope that we don't get, you know, as uh, as populations get pulled into those too much. Um, yeah. And I do think, I mean, on a tangential note, I do think that we need to reform the way the internet works in order to curb them because I, I think it's played a huge part in fermenting um, division and polarization among ordinary people. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, yeah I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. What about what about on the positive note? Is there something <laughs> that you know you can point to that you actually are hopeful about, even in in, in light of all of this? Well, it's very easy to be pessimistic when you look at the direction of the world. But I have to say, like I said, I've given lots of university talks this year and I see so many people, young and old, I have to say, responding in such positive ways to movements like Black Lives Matter, to feminist, to feminist movements, to social justice movements all over the world fighting for freedom and fighting for rights in places like Hong Kong and elsewhere, um, pushing for the lives that they want, uh, futures more equal and inclusive and united futures for themselves. And it's very difficult, I think, to be pessimistic when they're, when I think the number of people in the world fighting for a, a more inclusive future, I think, outweighs those who want something else. So... I'm, I, I agree. Am <laughs> yeah, you know, I agree. And I think almost a perfect example because of the timing of our interview is that, you know, you were mentioning spending time in Hungary and the the horrors of seeing this kind of governmental draconian blocking of, of uh, sort of free thought and, and intellectual curiosity when it comes to things like feminism and, and uh, you know, the history of, of gender relations. And then, you know, just what was it yesterday or the day before? Your next door neighbors in Scotland became the first nation <laughs> to make uh, sanitary products free to all I people know. who menstruate. It's amazing. Yeah. Really, really impressive. <laughs> I'm yeah, it's just beautiful. So it it's true. Beautiful. We can we can find examples of these strongman governments and these rise in populist movements where individuals really cling to a totalitarian leader who, you know, um purports to be the only answer to their problems, which is obviously not proven very successful historically. <laughs> and then, and then, but if we do keep our eyes open, we see these incredibly democratic, incredibly, um, uh, you know, beautiful policy changes occurring to uh, across the world to reduce the impacts of global climate change, to lift people, you know, um, out of poverty, to to um, bring opportunity, equal opportunity to to individuals. And I think that those things, you know, passings of of national healthcare movements, uh, you know, across democratic countries, we don't have that here. We we started to make some progress, but seeing how well it does in so many nations to me gives me, uh, you know, a lot of hope. These basic human rights um, movements that actually have just immeasurable, incalculable, incalculable. God, I can't say that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, impacts for people who have historically been oppressed or disenfranchised. Yeah. Um, those gains to me are just beautiful. They, they, mm. they, they bring a lot yeah. of emotion yeah. into my and heart. I, I'm not saying that history has one direction. I'm not necessarily sure that it does. But I do think that um, there is a lot of, I think in, in this point in history in particular, um, individuals have so much agency in how things turn out. We really do, as individuals, have such a huge impact on the direction of our governments, on um, the kind of future that we want to have. And that has to be celebrated. And we have to grasp that. We have to exercise that agency as much as possible. Absolutely. 
Well, Angela, thank you so much for taking the time. I knew I know we went we went over a bit. I was just having such a wonderful time <laughs> chatting with you. Oh, it's the day you. I'm recording this on the day before Thanksgiving, and I know that you guys don't celebrate. Yeah, it's except. Thanksgiving tomorrow. That's right. Well, yeah, hope you have yeah. a lovely day. Well, and it's a day <laughs> of giving thanks, as they say, and it's it's all about gratitude. And I just wanted to to mm. share my gratitude with you for spending this time with me today. Oh, thank you so much. It's been my pleasure course. And everybody listening, thank you as well for coming back week after week. I'm really looking forward to the next time we all get together to talk nerdy. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.